For the next two weeks, just to start in New Year, Andy's just alluded to it, I'm going to be doing a little mini-series on, based on what I think is the best book I read last year. Um, and it's a book called Crazy Busy, which I would encourage anybody in this room who likes reading books, and even the ones who don't, to go and buy at the bookshop afterwards or annoy Steve Thornett by asking him to order more. It is absolutely superb, and it's a book about why Christians are crazy busy and what to do about it. And I want to do it, but I found it so useful, I thought I wanted to start the year with a bit of a decluttering, ah, let's just get some stuff out of life kind of message, because if you're anything like me, you run through December, and then about half to two-thirds of the way through December, you think, thank goodness it's nearly Christmas, and then you sort of collapse into food and family for 10 days, and then you resurface and think, New Year's resolution, start of a new year, and start stressing about how next year you're going to add even more stuff into your life than you had last year. So this can be the time of year when people are at their most busy and at their most overwhelmed and stressed. And so I wanted to preach a couple of weeks on crazy busy, why so many Christians are stressed and what to do about it. And my goal is to help you and help us as a community become less stressed and less busy and more like Jesus. And so I'm not going to do systematic biblical teaching for the next two weeks. We do a lot of that here, but we won't be doing it for these two weeks. Instead, I want to give seven reasons why people are so stressed and busy and what we can do about them. And then we'll finish at the end of next week with the one thing that we absolutely must do about busyness and all the rest of it. And I should say up front that when I start talking about busyness, I am assuming that this is a problem for everyone in the room. Thank you. Yes. A loud yes down here from people. Yes, we are too busy to be here. Shut up. Get on with it. That sort of thing. And there's a lot of people here. And there might be a handful here who are thinking, do you know what? I I don't particularly connect with that. And that's okay. If there are two or three of you who say, I'm not busy. Great. Would you please bear with us? We sometimes preach as a church on topics that don't affect everybody. Preach on suffering. You might be doing fine. We preach on marriage. You might be single. We, We do that sometimes. And we're preaching on busyness. But I hope that if you're not busy, you can still bear with us and maybe pick something up. But I'm assuming that it is a big, big problem for most people here. And I'm assuming that your life works something like this. You become a Christian and you say, I must get a relationship with God sorted out. I want to pray, spend time with God. And like the plate spinning guy, you have your pole and then your, your relationship with God plate. You start spinning and off it goes. Very nice. All going. And then you say, and my marriage if I have a marriage, or my relationships if I'm, not, if I'm single, or my, fam- my children or whatever, or my grandchildren. So that's another thing. I must make sure that that's maintained as well. Stick goes in the ground, plate goes up, spin, spin in. Check the relationship with God's okay, family okay. This is great, I can do this. And then you say, but I need some money. I need to earn, earn some money, need a job. So you put another stick in. Job, that actually makes this one a bit more challenging. They're further apart, because when I'm working, I can't be having a devotional life. So okay, I better figure that one out. And so you do, and it's okay. And then you think, actually, personal evangelism. I haven't shared the gospel with anybody. That's another one. So get that spinning. And then this all starts wobbling a bit. You say, well, I can't share the gospel when I'm working, but I can when I'm at work. How does that work? And you're doing this a bit. And then they just get added one on top of another on top of another. And you just keep adding new. I need to maintain my friendships. Personal administration. That's a nuisance. Nobody likes doing it. Everyone has to do it. Why do I do that? And you're rushing around. And some of us live life just maintaining the plates without any real thoughts for which ones are important, which ones aren't, and we live our entire lives controlled by the plates that we fear might be smashing. And I'm going to assume that's a problem for many of us, if not all of us. If it's not a problem for you, I'm jealous, well done. But for most of us it is, and it's true across the age spectrum. So this is the weird thing. I would have thought 
that busyness was like a sort of a curve, like where you're a kid, you don't have that much that you have to do, and then it peaks when I think you're about my age, 35, where you go, I've just got everything to do, and then you would hope it to sort of gradually wound down like this. That's what I thought would happen. But it turns out when I ring my mum, and I say, mum, any chance you could help us out with the children on the 29th? This is what she says, we always laugh at her about it. She goes, I can't do it on the 28th. And we said, no, we didn't ask about the 28th, we said about the 29th. She said, I also can't do it on the 30th because I've got Pilates followed by... And she just starts telling you all the stuff that's going on in life. And she, even though she's not working in a paid job and her children have left home, she's still just as busy as she always was. She's just found stuff. Some would call it clutter. I wouldn't be one of those people to fill the space and made sure that she's got lots to do. And I then I remember going to one of the older life groups in the church years ago. Some of you were there and talking about busyness and rest. And somebody said, oh, "It's just the week is so busy. I don't think I can help with such and such." And I said, "Oh right, okay. Tell me about it. What's it?" I said, "Well, I've got bowls on this day. I've got golf on that day." And I was like, the, "Everything just came in to fill the space." In other words, no matter what stage you're in, students think they're the world's busiest people. I've got an exam in nine weeks' time, can't do anything except work. And you just think, life will get worse, don't worry. But anyway, and you just feel like, you feel like the, everybody in their stages of life, everyone's busy. It's not just people my age or your age, everybody's busy. And on that basis, I'm assuming it's a widespread issue and that it's a problem. Not just a, a neutral quirk of modern life, but it's a problem. Some of us are going through the Bible in one year together using the app or the online and, and so on. And it's just been great seeing people pick that up. We're, we're five days in and it's not too late to join us if you want to come with us through it. Um, but I, and I've been thinking it's superb. It's been really helpful. But I saw an endorsement for it today that I found quite troubling. There was a celebrity endorsement of the Bible in one year app. And there was a particular individual who said, what I love about this is, quote, it makes the Bible manageable for the busy person. It's full of moving stories, funny anecdotes, empowering messages, and down-to-earth advice. And at one level, I thought, you know, it is. That's a good description. At another level, I thought, that is a disturbing sign of the way life is in modern Christianity, that somebody could endorse something that, as if that's the best thing you could say about it, which is, it's wonderful. It makes the Bible manageable for my busy life. Rather than saying, do you know what? The busy life might be the problem, and actually getting 20 minutes in a day when you are doing nothing except hearing from God and quieting your soul is so important that it doesn't need to be made manageable and broken up. With, it's not, you don't just need a bit of scripture, a funny story, a bit of advice, right, good, ready to go. You don't need that. You need to hear from God and you need to wait and you need to be still. And if your busy life clashes with the Bible, then it's the busyness that needs to change and not the Bible. Now, I know the person who wrote it probably would agree, I, I suspect, but the, the quote reflected something to me that I thought was very widespread, which is really, I need to, I, I'm busy, that's the reality, and everything else needs to change. I don't think that's the right way of thinking about it, and so I want to share seven reasons why lots of us are stressed and what to do about it. We'll do four today, and we'll do three next week, plus the one thing you absolutely must do. The first reason why many of us are crazy busy is naivety. In other words, we don't realize that we have a problem. We just don't know that life isn't supposed to be like this and that we assume that's just what everybody does and it's what every generation has done, but it's not the case. The world has not always been like this. It's not normal that people live with as many different things going on in their lives as we do. You study history, you see that is not the case for most people who've been alive on this planet. There is new, it, cheap travel is new, so the opportunities to go places is new. 
Information available at the click of a button everywhere means that the amount of stuff you can find out and are supposed to know is massively greater than everybody else's. The number of possessions you can access and the speed with which you can access them is new. Even staying up after the sun has gone down is new. People didn't used to do that, did they? It got dark, you went to bed. Some of you were around. <laughs> Most of us, have, we've got lights. With... I didn't point at you. I don't know why you're laughing, but, but some of you were. But actually, now we have lights, we have technology, and there is no stopping. There was no such thing as a city that never sleeps 100 years ago. You, there couldn't be. There is now. Because everybody, you can always access more, 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 more stuff, and that makes our lives very frenetic, even just by being there, unless we're very disciplined. So our generation is full of opportunity and complexity, and that means busyness is more of a problem for us than it is for others who have lived on this earth. One study found commuters encounter more stress than fighter pilots and riot police, which I think is pretty alarming. Anybody in the room commutes, right? So you, yeah, and look at them, look at them, these poor people, yeah. So you commute somewhere and you think, I encounter very high levels of stress just by going on a train up to wherever and, and London or Brighton, whatever. And so there's a lot of, there might be naivety in us. We may think, it's just life, isn't it? Life is rushing around doing the plate thing. I didn't know that was a problem. I didn't know there was anything I could do about it. And if you don't, that's a problem in itself. Not being aware that that's an issue. And even if you do know that it's not always been like that, you may not think it's a problem for you because you may think, well, I'm not too busy. It's just busyness is other people's thing. Some of you know it is. Some of you aren't sure. So I'm going to do a quick diagnostic exercise. You need to turn in pairs and you don't have to play. Right? If you're a visitor, you don't want to play this game, that's absolutely fine. But if, you, if you're up for this, turn to the person next to you and answer the following questions truthfully. Question one, do you regularly work half an hour a day more than your contracted hours? Okay, mother's in the room, that's a yes, okay? I know that. Second question two, do you check work emails and phone messages at home? Question three. Do your family or friends complain about not getting enough time with you? Yes. There's a wistful voice from down there. Number four. If tomorrow suddenly became free, would you use it to work and do chores or would you use it to relax? If you suddenly got tomorrow off. Question five, do you often exceed the speed limit? I'm not judging. Oh, and there's no need to put your hands up, Judith Moyer. I don't, that's really not the kind of level we're at here. But <laughs> Question six, do you have enough time to pray with your spouse and or with your children, if, if applicable? That one's quieter, isn't it? Yes. Number seven, do you have a hobby you are actively involved in and Facebook does not count? <laughs> Question eight, do you eat together as a family or household at least once a day? Okay, how many people found themselves at the busy end of the spectrum on one or more of those? Most, I'd expect that. So this is a widespread issue in some form or other. What happens, of course, is we run our lives relative to 100% capacity. We pack out the we think we have got this much time and this much capacity, and I will put in this much stuff, which is the mistake. Because all that happens is it only takes one unexpected thing to enter at the top, and something else gets displaced, and you're suddenly manic. 
Somebody gets sick, there's a crisis in the family, and you suddenly find yourself with not enough capacity. What we should do, but we often don't, is to run our lives at 80 or 90% capacity to leave space for the fact that sometimes, because we're not God, unexpected things happen to us. So the first reason we may be crazy busy is we are naive. We simply don't realize there's a problem, and the answer to that is good old-fashioned self-awareness. And I'm not speaking, by the way, as an expert on this, as will become painfully clear. I am somebody who struggles with it as much as you, which is why I'm talking about it. The second reason we're crazy busy, and probably one that affects every one of us, is pride. Pride. The chances are that if we were to analyse all of the biggest sources of busyness in this room, pride would be at or near the top for almost all of us. Pride works, like, it works in a number of different ways. Pride is clever. Pride finds ways of destroying your joy in God, and it does it in lots of different ways. It causes people-pleasing. I must do this, this, and this because I want people to think well of me, and I'm really after approval, so I'll work really hard to make sure I get it. Or pride gets you by making you live for praise. So it's not just I want them to like me, I actually want them to say things to me that make me feel, you are wonderful, well done you, that's very impressive. So you say, I'll help with that, and they look at you sometimes with just this look of love and adoration that you've there resting on, you're mighty and strong to say, and you think, that's wonderful, I so am, thank you for the praise. It's like a deal we do with the person, you praise, I get busy. Or pride makes us think we're irreplaceable. Nobody else can do this as well as me. If I was not to do all of this preaching, no one would do it as well as me. If I did not run this training course I run, no one would do it as well as me. And then the painful thing happens, you are forced to offload this thing that you currently run to someone else, in my case, Jez Field, and discover that he does it better. It's excruciating. You hate Jez, but you do learn, many of you are there already, but you do learn, don't you, that it's actually not as much of a problem to pass things off to other people as you thought, because you're not irreplaceable. In fact, there's only three things in my life at which I am irreplaceable, in my view. Nobody else can own my relationship with God, nobody else can be a husband to my wife, and nobody else can be a father to my children. Other than that, everything I do could be done by somebody, and mostly a lot better. And the same is true for you. Most things you do, if you drop dead, somebody else would be able to do the job you're currently doing better than you. It's just nice to feel that freedom sometimes. I've had to come to terms with that. Some of you guys are listening to this thinking, it's certainly true of you, Wilson. So um, get down, get down. But it's re actually reality. It's liberating to know I am not irreplaceable. God is saving the world, not me. Accumulating possessions is another way pride goes through. You accumulate stuff, it makes you feel good. And in order to accumulate more stuff, you work harder, you do more in order to get more stuff. Proving yourself. I want my dad to think that I was a success. So I will take on more than I can in order to prove that he, is, that he was wrong and that I was right. Earning sympathy or pity. This biggest one for me at the moment, the, the line that none of you are allowed ever to say to me that I am most at risk, the, the line that my sinful self most loves that I don't want you to say is, I don't know how you do it. Oh, I love it when people say that. I just, I'm walking through people saying, do you know, I don't know how you do it. And I say, I don't know how I do it either. I'm the master at being me. You can, you had my to-do list, you wouldn't have a hope, but me, I'm, I don't know how I do it either. It's wonderful. When people say that, it's actually, it's festering pride within me. It's awful. And I don't want to, I'm obviously kidding. I want to stomp it out. So please don't say that kind of thing to me. It's just very bad for me. Or even another equivalent line is when people say, I'm sure you don't have time for me. 
Oh, it's wonderful when people say that. They are, it's like kneeling before you and saying, you are much more important than I am. So your time is more precious than mine. I'll make time for you. And I think, do you know, I am an unusually important person, actually. Thank you. It's horrible. And some of us do, we are busy in order to get people to say stuff like that. Right, honestly. I, I, sometimes that's what I do. And I, I had an example the other, the other day, a few weeks ago where I was emailed by someone in another church saying, could you write this article for our website? And the person who sent the email sent it at 11.45 at night before she went to bed. And I get up quite early because of our kids, so I picked up the email at 4.45 or something and thought, you know what? If I write the article now, she will get it when she turns on her phone in the morning, and I bet what she'll say is, I don't know how you do it. (laughs) So I wrote the article there and then. (laughs) I shouldn't have, by the way. I'm not endorsing this. I'm just saying this is what happens. I wrote the article there and then, and actually, if you're me, the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow isn't, I don't know how you do it, it's when she turns to someone in her office and goes, that Andrew Wilson, I don't know how he does it. (laughs) It's so frightening, so frightening. And I realised soon afterwards, I only did that because I wanted to look impressive. It wasn't because I was trying to serve her, it was because I just wanted someone to think that of me. Perfectionism is another way pride does this. Perfectionism, some of us think that's just a neutral personality trait, it's not. And some of us are more prone to it than others, but actually perfectionism is based on a doctrine of control, which is I can, if I do everything to the best of my ability, it will be perfect. And it won't. You are not God. You're not Jesus. You can't do that. And actually even there, my, I may need to be in control. So with lots and lots of tools, pride worms its way into our lives to try and make us crazy busy. So what do we do about it? Because it's not always obvious whether you're doing something out of pride or out of good motives. So the haagen run, for me, is one of those moments. So this is where Rachel is sad and is on the sofa in the evening and she's had a hard day. Getting haagen solves the problem for reasons I'm not fully clear on, but it does and some women will know what that is. And at that point, I, it's not always clear to me, am I going to buy her haagen from the supermarket to make her feel better because I want to serve her or because I want to look like a great guy? And the dilemma is, is this being motivated well or not? So here's the question you can ask yourself that will help you know. Am I trying in doing this thing, am I trying to do good or am I trying to look good? Ask yourself that question honestly of the things which are making you busy and you will be amazed how often the answer is, I'm doing that to try and look good. That's a practical example. You're having somebody coming around to your house and you're getting the house ready. There is a motive in you which is, I want to serve this person so that the house looks lovely when they get here. There is another darker motive, which is, I want to make the house look immaculate so that they will think, I don't know how she does it. (laughs) And you might find there's a mixture. But actually, when you ask, do you find that preparing the house for people to come around can make you stressed? The question is, is that busyness, is that stress being driven by a good desire to serve or by a desire to look good in the eyes of somebody else? And that question has really helped me since reading this. That question has really helped me think through what priorities should and shouldn't be. So you may be crazy busy because of pride. Third reason you may be crazy busy is out of a sense of obligation. Now this is a tricky one because this is what happens when we find out about needs in the world, in our family, in our community, and whatever, and we believe we need to fix them all. So we hear about serving the poor, feeding the hungry, preaching the gospel to unreached people groups, visiting people in prison, praying for the sick, comforting the dying, translating the Bible, getting clean water to children, fighting sex slavery, opposing abortion, building schools, building hospitals, fixing marriages, disaster relief. And we think, I've got to do all of those things. 
or I'm, I can't do them all, but I'm certainly going to feel very bad about the fact that I can't. And that sense of obligation can make people very busy. It can make people stressed. They can feel like, I can't do all of the things I must do. There is a lot of need. I have more than all of those people, therefore I must fix it. And we can feel obligated to solve the world's problems. And what the enemy loves to do is to take the legitimate obligations that we have, love God, love your neighbour, and pile all sorts of false ones on top. So then going, you can't do it all. So you say, love God, love your neighbour. Which basically means, what I'm obligated to do, I want to be a good dad, I want to be a good, good husband, I want to be a worshipper of God first and foremost. And I, I, do, I have a job and I want to be diligent at that as well. And then those are good obligations. And then the enemy piles others on top. You must also do this. You haven't done anything about that. You haven't thought about this. You haven't prayed for that. You haven't given to this. You haven't done that. And the genius of that strategy is it's never finished. So you and I are looking at a list that no matter how much of it we fulfill, another item just appears at the top. You're obligated to do this and this and this and this. That's a genius strategy for making people feel full of guilt and useless. And what we need to do is to learn to distinguish between obligations to serve and opportunities to serve. Because actually what God has given us is not a list of obligations to do all... None of the things I just read out are obligations. We all need to love the poor, but we don't have to do it in any of those individual ways. Some of us might be called to love the poor in none of those ways and in a very different but related way. And none of those individual things are something that you have to do as a Christian. And we can sometimes not help each other because we, you and I get up ahead of steam and passionate about one issue and we can make it sound like people who aren't passionate about that issue are somehow less than Christian. But actually, they're passionate about another issue and they're going for that with all their heart. And God is using all of us together to save the world through Jesus, but he's not asking any one of us to take all of it on and we can't. They're just opportunities to serve. So, feeding the hungry is an opportunity to serve. Fighting sex slavery is an opportunity to serve. And getting clean water to children is an opportunity. They're all opportunities, but none of them are in the Bible as in you must do that. And if you don't, you're not a Christian. John the Baptist got it right. John the Baptist said, I freely confess to you, I'm not the Christ. That's a good thing for every husband or wife to say in this room to somebody else, to say to the husband or wife in this room. I freely confess to you, I'm not the Christ. I'm not the Messiah. Can't do it. Save the world? That's him, not me. John the Baptist, what are you looking at me for? I'm not going to rescue the world. He is. I'm not that guy. I freely confess to you, I'm not the Christ. I hope you didn't think I was. And it's a good habit to get into of just cultivating knowledge that the obligation to fix the world is not yours, it's his. And what he's done is to give opportunities to fix the world in myriad different ways as a community, not just in Eastbourne of eight or 900, but of billions around the world. That's how God does things. We are the body of Christ. Some will do this, some will do that. I'm meant to care about all of those things. I'm not supposed to, I don't want to be indifferent and say, oh, don't care about people dying of starvation. I'm just saying it may be that God hasn't called me to do anything about that, but he has called me to do something about this. So obligations and opportunities need to be distinguished in our lives or we go mad trying to fulfill an unfulfillable list of tasks that we were never intended to have then you may be crazy busy because you have turned opportunities into obligations. I had this, Rachel and I had this um, a couple of years ago with Dave Holden, who many of you know, and we were sitting down with Dave and Liz talking about a couple we know, two couples we know actually, a very high capacity who are able to do all the things we do better and happier and lots of other stuff too. 
You probably know, you know both of them, actually. They've both been to preach here, so some of you would know them. And we just we used to compare ourselves and think, I, it's just so painful that we can't do that and that, and we keep failing here, here, and here. And Dave Holden gave me one of the best lines of advice I've ever had. He said, listen, you mustn't compare yourself with freaks. And it was so, I kind of had that response. I paused and then I laughed. I thought, what do you mean? And he said, I learned that a few years ago about Terry Virgo. Man's a freak. Can't compare myself with him. Flies all around the world, plants churches, leads a movement of a thousand church. Got five kids. They're all wonderful, well brought up. He's got a great marriage, happy, always praying for hours. And, all that. He, he, he's, and he's always on top of the world. And I, he's just a freak. And if I compare myself to him, this is Dave Holden speaking, known him for 30 years. He said, if I compare myself with him, I will guilt myself every day. I mustn't compare yourself with myself with a freak, and you mustn't either. So he said, stop doing it. And I have, to the best of my ability, stopped comparing myself with freaks in response. Because what it does is creates more obligations. And some of you have got people like that in your road or in your life group, and you think, they do all of the things I do and do this, and they're always just smilier, and their marriage is so much better than mine, and their kids are just, and I just don't know how to, I can't do it. Stop comparing yourself with freaks. It's just what the enemy loves to do. Just put more obligation on you. They're opportunities to serve, many of them, not obligations. And finally, muddle. Good old-fashioned muddle. This is where a lot of us are crazy busy. You have never sat down and worked out your top three priorities, and as a result, you don't know what your posteriorities are, which doesn't mean where you're sitting. It means the things that come last at the end of your list. I'm disappointed more if you didn't get that. Don't worry, posterior. Anyway, just, you'll, you'll get it over lunch. It'll be fine. But um, this, the kind of idea of saying, I've got these things which are really important, and as a result, those things are not priorities for me. They may be good, they may be noble, others may do them. That's not what I'm supposed to do. And if you don't, if you, some of you are just muddled. You don't know what the main thing to do is, and you're worried about it. And so, you, as a result, you're like somebody who's been plonked into a room full of spinning plates and has never had time to think which ones matter and which ones don't. And you just run around doing this the whole time like a headless chicken. Some of you live life that way. I live life that way when the children vomit. This is what happens in my house. right? One of the children is sick in the night. Rachel wakes up, gets out of bed, is immediately alive, walks down the hall, deals with it. Sort of, okay, so we need to get those clothes. Oh, yes, all right, sweetheart, take you that off you. Put it in a bag, wrap it all up, get out the anti-back, put on the new sheet, put on the new clothes, back, back to bed. That's not how I respond. When one of the children vomits, the first thing I do is obviously panic. That's first priority. Start shouting. Like, no, I can't believe it. It's ruined my life. In the middle of the night again. I'm going to be really sleepy. So I'm fast asleep. I'm not going to be able to cope. That's my first response. I don't know what the main thing I'm supposed to do is, so I just start randomly yelling. That's the first priority for me. And then I start doing all sorts of entirely unhelpful but little menial pieces of work. Like, I run around and I pick up a drink and just run along the hall and put it down somewhere else. And I pick up a towel over the banisters and sort of run in and then look at Rachel and then run out again. And then I run downstairs for reasons I'm not quite clear on and find there's nothing there either and then charge back upstairs again. When I, in the nine o'clock meeting, I said, Rachel, is this, she was at the back, I said, do you think this is the greatest area of incompetence in my marriage? And she said, yes. This is the stupidest area of my marriage. And actually, a lot of us do life like that. What happens is you end up doing everything and nothing, isn't it? You find, I'm just, which plates? Does it matter if that one breaks or that one? I don't know. Let's just run around like a mad thing doing everything and nothing at the same time. So I'm as exhausted as someone who's saving the world and I'm utterly fruitless at it as well. It's the worst of both worlds. And when you don't know what your priorities are, as I don't when the children throw up, you don't know what your priorities aren't and consequently live very silly lives. 
Multitasking, this is a word that ought to be punched on the nose. It doesn't exist, and there's a lot of studies that show that it doesn't exist, because actually what it says is, you can do one thing that you're concentrating on and another thing you're not thinking about. That we can do. You can walk and chew gum, you can talk and drive. What you cannot do is two tasks at the same time that require concentration. You cannot type an email and talk to your child at the same time. No one can. It's never been done. And yet we still think, I'm multitasking. No, you're not. You're switch tasking. You're, and that's making you more stressed, not less. Stop it. End of brackets. <laughs> the only so it's muddle. It's muddle. The only solution to muddle about what you are and aren't supposed to be doing is clarity about what you are supposed to do, which causes clarity about all the other things you're not supposed to do. Mark 1, verses 35 to 39. This is how Jesus does it. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, don't beat yourself up. People used to go to bed earlier, so they wake up earlier. So it don't, that doesn't mean you're awful for praying when it's daylight. So. He departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him and said to him, everyone is looking for you. Come on, teacher, let's get a bit more stress in your life. Come on. And he said to them, let's go on to the next towns, that I may preach there also, for that's what I came for. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. Jesus knew what he was supposed to be doing. Praying, spending time with my father, and preaching the gospel of the kingdom and demonstrating it in signs and wonders. That's what I'm here to do. I am not here, however, to fix every problem in every village. So if I've been into this village, proclaimed the kingdom, demonstrated the kingdom, I can now leave and go to the next one, even though there's still people there who have need. In fact, I have to, because otherwise the next village and the next village won't hear about it. So Jesus says, I know what I am called to do, and as a result, he says, I'm not called to do that. And Simon and the others are going, what are you talking about? Look at all these people who still have various physical, spiritual needs. Jesus says, I'm not, that, I'm not doing that, I'm going on to the next one. Because he knew what he was supposed to do, he knew what he wasn't supposed to do. So I'd encourage you to do this over the next 24 hours. If you get a, a few minutes to be able to do this exercise, just think this one through. Can you make a list of three things that you are not supposed to do? And obviously you can make millions, right? Then they, some of them can be silly. But just think through, look at your life and just think, are there three things in the kind of life that people like me lead that I'm just simply not meant to do? Others are, I'm not. Right? So my, some of mine, I am not supposed to speak at men's breakfasts or Christian unions or church weekends away or travel more than three or four times a year. I'm just not supposed to do it. Lots of preachers do, lots of people who write do. I'm not, that's not me. So I'm, I now I have a list of things which I, because I know what the main things are, I know what the main things aren't and can structure my life that way. Can you just have a think through maybe as couples or families or singles, just what are the things I'm supposed to do but what are the things I'm not supposed to do that I'm currently might be doing? It might be a very useful exercise. And one other point of application on this whole muddle thing, by the way, as a community, let's be good at allowing others to make priorities that aren't us. So if somebody te you text somebody, you want to reply straight away, and you don't get one, you think they're rude, they may not be rude, they may be prioritizing, and effectively saying by their non-reply, I have multiple priorities at the moment, and you aren't close to being one of them. Try not to get offended. It's important, actually. I mean, I'm kidding around, but it is, it is important. Somebody says, can you do this? Sorry, I haven't got time. What I haven't got time means is I have other priorities that are higher on my list than you. That's what it means. 
But you want to allow them, in fact, encourage them to do that. The other day, I got an email from a guy, nothing to do with his message. He just a, an elder in a former church I was in said he's written his first book, could I endorse it for him? Could I read it and endorse it? And I emailed back straight away and said, I'm really sorry, I, I just don't have the time. Which he knows means that's not my priority at the moment. He responded in an incredibly wise way. He emailed straight back within seconds and said, so encouraged to hear you prioritise in that way. And he didn't know I was doing this. And I thought, that is the kind of community I'd love us to have, where we are actually validating the decisions people are making and saying, do you know that sort of rudeness thing? It's not a character flaw. It might be occasionally if it always comes across rude, but you know what I mean? This is, decision-making is valuable for us to get this right. And I say, I don't want to be in a muddle. I want to know what I am and I'm not supposed to be. Now, in some ways, all that I've said in the last half hour is common sense, and not very much of it is uniquely Christian. And that's worrying some of you. <laughs> Where's the Bible? But, but I want to tell you what is uniquely Christian and what the gospel has unique power to do is to expose just how deep some of those problems are and just how desperately we need the solution. So as we close, and we're going to break bread in a moment, I want to just focus in on how the gospel does that. The Christian gospel shows us that, for example, since Jesus Christ was born as a man to rescue us, and we are compelled to become self-aware about how big a problem we have. So naivety is not an option. Because we know how deep our problem is, because Jesus had to come and fix it, we couldn't do it. Because Jesus Christ was crucified for our sins and died a bloody death, we are able to look and say, do you know what? Pride is a much bigger problem than I might have thought if Jesus had to do that in order to save me. And I'm therefore compelled and empowered to pour contempt on all my pride in order to find freedom. And that shows how desperate that is. Because Jesus Christ is risen from the dead, we can have confidence that he's bringing about the new creation, not us. And therefore, although we have a minor but important part to play in his story, he's the one who's governing it all, and he's the one whose new creation is breaking out. So we don't have to live with a sense of obligation over every single thing that's going wrong. And because Jesus Christ is ascended to heaven and is ruling heaven and earth, we can have absolute clarity about what the most important thing in life is, and we have no need to have model. No Christian should ever really have to ask, what is the most important thing? Because somebody asked that of Jesus and he said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul and strength and love your neighbour as yourself. There's no greater commandments than these. So I know that if the priorities I've set are getting in the way of me doing those two things, they're the wrong priorities. That's the game. Love God. That's why in a way that, that comment at the beginning about the busyness of the Bible bothered me because I thought, no, the priority is love God with all your heart, then love your neighbour as yourself and everything else revolves like planets in orbit around those two central commitments so the gospel enables us to be free in that sense of crazy busyness we're going to look at another three things next week and we're going to also talk about the one thing we absolutely must do but for now we're going to come to the cross together as a church and this is i love doing this together we're going to break bread and we're going to do it really to come before jesus to repent of pride to ask for forgiveness of sin to say thank you for forgiveness of sin to celebrate victory and to participate in communion together to be united again not just with the other people in this room but with the billions of other people around the world who do this every week and we, we have one loaf one cup one i mean we have lots of little shot glasses actually but we are we partake together in this one act of union really with everybody else who's a christian and we do that as those who have been forgiven of sin and those whom jesus loves very deeply so what we're going to do is four tables in the corners of the room 
We have bread and juice. If you're new to the church, if you're a Christian, whatever church background you're from, please come and join us at the table. Uh, We end up just taking a bit of bread, a bit of juice, and we are then going to celebrate the cross of Jesus Christ, the Prince of Glory dying, so that we're able to be free of all of this stuff and be forgiven. So let's stand together. The band are going to come out and help us. And when when you're in your own time, if you just want to go and take your bread and juice, Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the gospel. Thank you so much for the example of Jesus, but not just his example, but his victory, his power in breaking the chains that hold us back, in liberating us, in forgiving us from the sin, particularly in my case, the pride that has so often corrupted my life, but you have set me free and forgiven me, and I love you, and I thank you, and we together celebrate as a community the astonishing power and victory of the cross of Christ. Amen.